The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today the next passage we come to is Genesis 35, 1-29. through 29. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that I might make an altar there to God, who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Sechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Lutz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him, God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I have given to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I'll give to the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he'd spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Epath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, where, this, where there, it is to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder, and Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiroth Abba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him, 
May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Natalie. Let's pray this morning. Father, what a privilege it is to open and study your word. Uh, we understand that as uh, 2 Timothy tells us, these words come from your very mouth. Uh, they are God-breathed and profitable, it says, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to be thoroughly equipped for each of those things and ultimately to come to a deeper knowledge and a deeper love and a deeper relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most basic desires that people have is for their lives to be significant. People want their lives to count for something and to have some transcendent meaning. And they often try to find that meaning in all sorts of different ways. Uh, just to give one example, I've noticed that many of those who are more, I guess, secularly minded in this country uh, tend to be extremely uh, passionate about certain political and social causes, uh, to the point that in some cases it would seem as though those causes are the central focus uh, of their lives and the central way in which uh, those secularly minded individuals seek to infuse meaning into their lives, into what would otherwise be a, a meaningless existence. Of course, as secularists, they don't believe in God, or a knowable God, and so they have to figure out a, a way for their lives to be meaningful. And very often, the best they can do when it comes to figuring out meaning or purpose for their lives is to devote themselves to those political and social pursuits. So political and social causes are, in a sense, their religion. And so when it comes to something, like I'll just give one practical example, uh, Pride Month, let's say, which was, of course, last month, their zeal for everything that month stands for really can be described quite accurately as a religious zeal. Make no mistake, Pride Month is every bit as much of a holy month for many secularists as something like Ramadan is for Muslims. And that's because Again, they need something to live for. They long for their lives to count for something. And that's not unique, right? That's a desire all of us have. It's, it's universal to all of us. People crave purpose. And, you know, I mentioned the LGBT movement as one example, but there are plenty of other examples as well. All around us, even in our increasingly secular society, people are desperately searching for a way for their lives to be meaningful and significant. And yet the Bible teaches that people, whether they realize it or not, have been created in the image of God. 
That's what we're told in Genesis 1.26. And part of what that means is that we were created to know God and enjoy God and ultimately to worship God. Just as a bird was created to fly, we were created to worship God. And since that's what we were created for, it makes sense for that to be the only thing that can truly satisfy us. Going back to the bird again, if a bird was created to fly but can't fly for some reason, maybe it has an injured wing or something like that, I can't imagine that bird being very happy. I believe it's reasonable to assume uh, that because birds were created to fly, they won't be happy unless they're able to do that. Similarly, you and I were created to worship God and therefore won't be truly satisfied in the deepest depths of our soul unless we're doing that. So it's ultimately the worship of God that gives sufficient meaning and purpose to our lives. Now, as you can see, I've titled the sermon, The Dynamics of True Worship. Uh, that's what we see in Genesis 35, and therefore what we'll spend our time today exploring. The main idea of this chapter is a very simple one uh, this week. Jacob worships God at Bethel. Someone said some of my main ideas are getting a little wordy. Well, there you go. Jacob worships God at Bethel. Uh, now, by the way, it might be helpful for me to just briefly define worship right here at the outset. When I speak of worship this morning, I'm simply talking about giving God glory for who he is and what he's done. That's the simplest definition I can come up with. Giving God glory for who he is and what he's done. And as we go through this chapter, we're going to see four principles related to worship. I'll identify those as we get to them. Uh, we first read this in verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So the reason God tells Jacob to go to Bethel in order to do this is because of what's, been, what's happened earlier in the book. It's because uh, that's where God originally met Jacob way back in Genesis 28. God had come to Jacob in a dream and had made the same promises to him that he had originally made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, before that. Extravagant promises about inheriting the land of Canaan, having offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth, and being God's instrument of blessing for the whole world. We then read about Jacob's response to that initial encounter with God in Genesis 28, 18 through 22. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob had committed back in Genesis 28, to one day 
return to Bethel and build a structure to be used for the worship of God. And coming back now to our main passage, that's why God tells Jacob to go to Bethel and build this altar. We then read in verses 2 through 4, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So in preparation for worshiping God at Bethel, Jacob tells his entire household, which included not only his very large family, remember, 12 kids, but also his, the numerous servants that he employed. So he tells them that they need to do several things. First was to put away the foreign gods that were among them. Uh, some of these idols had probably come from the 20 years Jacob had spent serving Laban, and others had probably come from the loot uh, Jacob's household had taken from Shechem. And, and I have to admit that I find it personally a bit disappointing that these idols were present in Jacob's household. Uh, we might have hoped that Jacob would have been leading his household to be a bit more uh, devoted uh, to the one true God, but it seems as though some of them, uh, at least, were holding on to these idols. In addition, Jacob also tells them to purify themselves, which would have involved a ritualistic washing of their bodies with water. And then lastly, he tells them to change their garments, which is somewhat unique in the Old Testament and appears to be symbolic of a commitment to live as new people. And as we consider these instructions, Jacob gives to his household in preparation for worshiping God, we discover the first principle for worship, which is that holiness is the great prerequisite for worship. Holiness is the great prerequisite for worship. You can't really be close to God or worship God if you're knowingly tolerating sin in your life. The prophet Habakkuk says to God in Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So God has what we might call a zero-tolerance policy for sin. His holiness is so absolute that he can't tolerate any sin. It says, it says cannot, right? He cannot tolerate any sin in his presence. We're also told in Psalm 24, 3 and 4, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So what's the requirement for ascending the hill of the Lord and being in his presence? Clean hands and a pure heart. You know, so often we imagine that we can have certain sins in our lives and also have God as well, as if the two of them could somehow coexist. Perhaps we think that we can dabble in pornography throughout the week and then come and worship God on Sunday as if nothing had happened. 
Or perhaps we, we think that we can habitually engage in gossip and still have a close and thriving relationship with God. And yet these verses remind us that that's just not true. Whenever the Holy Spirit brings a sin in your life to your attention, right, we stand at a crossroads. The thing about a crossroads, of course, is that you can't go two different directions at the same time. If you go right, you can't go left. If you go left, you can't go right. We have to choose between two mutually exclusive options. And likewise, whenever the Holy Spirit brings a sin in our life to our attention, we have a choice to make. Sin or God. It's really that simple. As Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. So take a moment and ask yourself, what have you been holding on to that you need to forsake even this very day? What idols do you need to not just bury and apparently save for later, as they do here, but what idols do you need to, in effect, smash to pieces? Understand that as long as you tolerate these sins in your life, whatever they are, you'll never be able to enjoy God or worship God in a truly meaningful and satisfying way. Because holiness is the great prerequisite for meaningful worship. And ultimately, that holiness in its most absolute sense isn't something we can achieve for ourselves simply by reforming certain aspects of our lives. Rather, it's something that has to be given to us by God. Because the Bible is very clear that our problem isn't just that we commit certain sins. The problem goes deeper than that. We're sinful by our very nature. Isaiah 64, 6 states that we have all become like one who is unclean and that even our most righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Think about that. The most righteous things we do are like a polluted garment in the eyes of God. Why is that? Well, that's because they flow out of a heart that's been corrupted and defiled by sin. And try as we might, there's nothing that we can do to cleanse or to change our sinful heart. What we need is for God to cleanse us. And the way he does that, of course, is through Jesus. When we were utterly helpless to do anything about our spiritual condition, right? This is the central message of Christianity. When we were utterly helpless to help ourselves, Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfectly sinless life, and then died on the cross to atone for our sins. That means Jesus suffered the punishment our sins deserved on the cross so that we wouldn't have to suffer that punishment in hell. And that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross purchased our cleansing. That's why 1 John 1, 7 states that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 
Of course, that cleansing isn't automatic. Uh, The Bible teaches that in order for us to experience that cleansing, that we have to turn away from our sin and put our trust in Jesus alone as our only hope of being cleansed from sin and made right with God. Only then can we know God and worship God as we were meant to do. So that's the first principle. Holiness is the great prerequisite for worship. Then going back to Genesis 35, we also see another principle in these verses, specifically in verse 3. After Jacob tells his household to put away their idols, cleanse themselves, and change their clothes, he says, Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So notice how Jacob speaks of God. He doesn't just call him God, but rather the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. Jacob intends to worship not just some like, generic God, but a God with specific characteristics that have been displayed in specific ways. So the second principle for worship is that we worship God in light of his abundant grace toward us. We worship God in light of his abundant grace toward us. Jacob was going to Bethel in order to worship the God who had shown him remarkable grace in rescuing him from his brother Esau. When Esau, and we read in previous chapters, had, had been filled with murderous rage toward Jacob, and had been actively making plans to kill Jacob, God had delivered Jacob from the vengeance of his brother. That's the reason why Bethel was so significant. Another reason, right? God had met Jacob while Jacob was on the run from Esau and had rescued Jacob from his perilous situation. And Jacob was now returning to Bethel in order to worship God in light of what God had done. Similarly, we worship God in light of his abundant grace toward us. A grace that's been demonstrated most of all, of course, in the death of Jesus on the cross. It's at the cross that God rescued us from our sin. Therefore, the cross is what we might call the citadel of Christian worship. As the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon writes, Beloved, there is a cure for every spiritual disease at the cross. There is food for every spiritual virtue in the Savior. We never go to him too often. He is never a dry well or a vine from which every cluster has been taken. We do not think enough of him. We are poor Because we do not go to the gold country which lieth round the cross. We are often sad because we do not see the bright light that shines from the constellation of the cross. The beams of that constellation would give us instantaneous joy and rest if we perceived them. If any lover of the souls of men would do for them the best possible service... He would constantly take them near to Christ. So we worship God in light of his abundant grace 
toward us seen chiefly at the cross. And of course, there are plenty of additional aspects of God's glorious nature that inform and inspire our worship as well. And understanding those truths about God is absolutely essential for meaningful worship. See, if we want to worship God in a meaningful way, then we have to understand that worship is responsive in nature. In worship, we're responding to substantive truths about God. That involves first understanding those truths and then rejoicing in those truths. You might say that in worship, we're savoring truths about God and the various aspects of God's glory. And by the way, this is why we here at Redeeming Grace decide which songs we're going to sing at our worship gatherings, primarily on the basis of the biblical and theological richness of their lyrics. Like, we want to sing songs that have biblically substantive lyrics. Because again, worship is responsive in nature. So if we're going to worship God in a meaningful way in our singing, then we need something substantive to respond to. Like, we need lyrics that remind us of substantive truths about God. You know, a few moments ago, I uh, described worship as savoring various aspects of God's glory, much like we might savor a really nice steak or something like that. And this might seem kind of obvious, but you can't savor air. In order for your taste buds to savor something, there has to be something in your mouth besides air. Similarly, if we want to worship God in a meaningful way in our singing, then it's kind of hard to do that if the songs we're singing are just shallow and lack biblical substance. I forget who said this, but I once heard it said that if a song isn't substantive enough, to make it worth praying as a prayer, it's probably not worth singing as a song. If a song's not substantive enough to make it worth praying as a prayer, it's probably not worth singing as a song. So that's the second principle. We worship God in light of his abundant grace toward us. Then moving forward in our main passage of Genesis 35, we read this in verses 5 through 7. And as they, uh, that would be Jacob and his household, journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, uh, which is the land of Canaan, in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So Jacob arrives at Bethel and builds an altar to God. Uh, an altar uh, was a structure, a structure that was built as an expression of someone's devotion to God and also usually as a place for offering sacrifices to God. And that brings us to the third principle for worship, which is that worship, true worship, manifests itself in outward 
and visible ways. True worship manifests itself in outward and visible ways. Uh, Although worship itself is something that takes place in our hearts, it doesn't stay in the heart. Just as we've already said that worship is responsive in nature, we can also say it's expressive in nature. It's expressed, of course, in verbal praise to God. It's the most obvious thing. And it's also expressed in various other aspects of our lives as well. True worship on the inside will inevitably express itself and manifest itself in a variety of different ways. It'll manifest itself, for example, in the form of loving acts toward other people. It's also manifested in our efforts to share the gospel in love, right? And to to help others discover the spiritual riches that we've discovered in Jesus. You might compare it to the way you know if a heater's working or not. Maybe for a day like today, it might be more accurate to compare it to the air conditioner, right? How would you know if the air conditioner is working? What would be the most obvious way? Well, it would be to put your hand in front of a vent and to see if it's putting out any cold air, right? I mean, that the chief sign that an air conditioner is functioning properly is that it's putting out cold air. Similarly, the chief sign that we're worshiping God on the inside is that our worship is being manifested on the outside in very visible and practical ways. Again, such as love for other people and a visible passion to share the gospel. We might say that our worship of God overflows in the form of work for God. There's something deficient about your worship if it's not being expressed in outward ways. Then moving forward in our main passage, we read in verses 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he, had, when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and put oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So God reaffirms that Jacob's name will now be Israel and also reaffirms the promises he had previously made to Jacob when Jacob was first at Bethel back in chapter 28. And Jacob responds by setting up a pillar and pouring out a drink offering and oil on that pillar. And as verse 15 reminds us, he calls the name of that place Bethel which means 
as those who live in or close to Bethel Park, we should know this, Bethel means house of God. And it's interesting to note that Jacob had already actually named the place Bethel, if you've been paying close attention in Genesis, uh, back in Genesis 28, 19. So we might wonder, like, why are we told here that Jacob names the place Bethel apparently for a second time? I believe the best answer is that Jacob now has a much deeper and more profound understanding of God than he had in his youth. God had been like progressively revealing himself to Jacob and teaching him profound lessons to the various ups and downs of Jacob's life. And so, Jacob names the place Bethel for a second time and is now able to do so with a much deeper appreciation for the significance of that place as the site of his encounter with God. Essentially, it's the same name, but now infused with new meaning and significance. And the principle we see in that, our fourth principle this morning, is that our worship should be getting deeper and more profound as we grow in the Lord. Our worship should be getting deeper and more profound as we grow in the Lord. So if if we've been a Christian for numerous years, we may not necessarily be learning entirely new truths about God all the time. In fact, we probably won't. But we should absolutely be developing a deeper understanding and appreciation of the truths, the very same truths we've heard before. So, for example, if you've just become a Christian recently, we might have a certain understanding of what it means for God to be merciful. And there might not be anything wrong or inaccurate about that understanding. However, after we've been a Christian for 10 years, let's say, hopefully we have a deeper understanding of what it means for God to be merciful. Hopefully, we're aware of new aspects of his mercy that we weren't aware of at the beginning of our Christian life. And then, after we've been a Christian for 30 years, hopefully we have even greater insight into the mercy of God. It's the same truth, but one that we now understand with greater insight. And it's in this same way that we come to a deeper appreciation of the gospel, you know, the message of Jesus and what he's done to rescue us. I love the way a pastor named Bob Thune has illustrated this. You can see uh, toward the left a point in time labeled conversion which is the time when we first put our trust in Jesus and become a Christian. And as we grow spiritually throughout our Christian life, uh, you can see on the top arrow how we gain a progressively deeper knowledge of God's holiness, and on the bottom arrow, how we simultaneously gain a progressively deeper knowledge of our sin. And as we gain a deeper knowledge of those twin truths, we develop a deeper appreciation for the magnitude of God's grace in saving us. 
as we understand more of how holy God is, and by contrast, how sinful and wretched and undeserving we are, it dawns on us to a progressively greater degree how amazing it is that such a holy God would be gracious to such sinful people. And that's represented in the illustration by the cross between those two arrows getting bigger and bigger. So if you're a Christian, this should be happening in your life. If it's not, and it seems as though you've become stagnant in your growth and your, your growth in the Lord has plateaued, honestly, hopefully this is a wake-up call for you. As the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Like, are you doing that? Right? Are you, as it says, straining forward to what lies ahead? Are you pressing on for the prize? Are you growing in your knowledge of the Lord and your love for the Lord and your likeness to the Lord? Or are you just trying to live off of yesterday's gains? The prayer life you had a decade ago. The Bible verses you memorized as a teenager. The habits of Bible study you had when you first came to know Christ. Are you trying to live off of yesterday's gains? If so, let these words from the 19th century theologian uh, J.C. Ryle be a warning. He writes, believe me, you cannot stand still in the affairs of your souls. Habits of good or evil are daily strengthening in your hearts. Every day, you are either getting nearer to God or further off. In other words, it's not really possible to be at a spiritual standstill. You're either actively growing closer to God or you're passively drifting away from Him. So which state you in right now? And if you determine that you're drifting away, what can you do even today to get back on track? So those are the four principles uh, for worship we find in Genesis 35. Holiness is the great prerequisite for worship. We worship God in light of his abundant grace toward us. True worship manifests itself in outward and visible ways. And our worship should be getting deeper and more profound as we grow in the Lord. And let me encourage you, as we think about the subject of worship, to recognize how central worship is for the Christian life. A theologian named A.W. Tozer once wrote that worship is our whole reason for existence. He says it's why we are born and why we are born again. 
Yet, unfortunately, it seems like we often forget that. That's why Tozer elsewhere refers to worship as the missing jewel of American evangelicalism. Think about that. The missing jewel of American evangelicalism. It's like we we have the, the band of the ring and we have the setting of the ring, but not the jewel. The jewel is missing. I can tell you right now that if my wife looked down at her engagement ring that I got her in, uh, discovered that the main diamond in that ring was missing, there would be no small amount of freaking out and frantically searching for it, (laughs) probably from the both of us. And yet Tozer says, and I believe he has a point, that the jewel of worship is often missing from our ring. You know, most evangelical churches uh, have wonderful systems and carefully designed and manicured structures and great mission statements that sound really good and well-written bylaws and well-funded programs and, and all of this other machinery. But do we really go through our week and our daily lives in a state of worship of God? Do we really engage in meaningful, rich, daily worship of the glorious God that we serve? 